Ronald Reagan and the End of the Cold War Rarely has America produced a president so suited to his time and so attuned to it as Ronald Reagan. A decade earlier, Reagan had seemed too militant to be realistic. A decade later, his convictions might have appeared too one-dimensional. But faced with a Soviet Union whose economy was stagnating and whose gerontocratic leadership was quite literally perishing serially, and supported by an American public opinion eager to shed a period of disillusionments, Reagan combined America's latent, sometimes seemingly discordant strengths, its idealism, its resilience, its creativity, and its economic vitality. Sensing potential Soviet weakness and deeply confident in the superiority of the American system, he had read more deeply in American political philosophy than his domestic critics credited. Reagan blended the two elements— power and legitimacy, that had in the previous decade produced American ambivalence. He challenged the Soviet Union to a race in arms and technology, that it could not win, based on programs long stymied in Congress. What came to be known as the Strategic Defense Initiative, a defensive shield against missile attack, was largely derided in Congress and the media when Reagan put it forward. Today, it is widely credited with convincing the Soviet leadership of the futility of its arms race with the United States. At the same time, Reagan generated psychological momentum with pronouncements at the outer edge of Wilsonian moralism. Perhaps the most poignant example is his farewell address as he left office in 1989, in which he described his vision of America as the shining city on a hill. I've spoken of the shining city all my political life but I don't know if I ever quite communicated what I saw when I said it. But in my mind, it was a tall, proud city, built on rocks stronger than oceans, wind-swept, God-blessed, and teeming with people of all kinds living in harmony and peace. A city with free ports that hummed with commerce and creativity. And if there had to be city walls, the walls had doors, and the doors were open to anyone with the will and the heart to get here. That's how I saw it and see it still. America as a shining city on a hill was not a metaphor for Reagan. It actually existed for him because he willed it to exist. This was the important difference between Ronald Reagan and Richard Nixon, whose actual policies were quite parallel and not rarely identical. Nixon treated foreign policy as an endeavor with no end, as a set of rhythms to be managed. He dealt with its intricacies and contradictions like school assignments by an especially demanding teacher. He expected America to prevail, but in a long, joyless enterprise, perhaps after he left office. Reagan, by contrast, summed up his Cold War strategy to an aide in 1977 in a characteristically optimistic epigram, We win, they lose. The Nixon style of policymaking was important to restore fluidity to the diplomacy of the Cold War. The Reagan style was indispensable for the diplomacy of ending it. On one level, Reagan's rhetoric, including his March 1983 speech referring to the Soviet Union as the evil empire, might have spelled the end of any prospect of East-West diplomacy. On a deeper level, it symbolized a period of transition— as the Soviet Union became aware of the futility of an arms race, while its aging leadership was facing issues of succession. 
hiding complexity behind a veneer of simplicity, Reagan also put forward a vision of reconciliation with the Soviet Union, beyond what Nixon would ever have been willing to articulate. Reagan was convinced that communist intransigence was based more on ignorance than on ill will, more on misunderstanding than on hostility. Unlike Nixon, who thought that a calculation of self-interest could bring about accommodation between the United States and the Soviet Union, Reagan believed the conflict was likely to end with the realization by the adversary of the superiority of American principles. In 1984, on the appointment of the Communist Party veteran Konstantin Chernenko as top Soviet leader, Reagan confided to his diary, I have a gut feeling I'd like to talk to him about our problems man to man and see if I could convince him there would be a material benefit to the Soviets if they'd join the family of nations, etc. When Mikhail Gorbachev succeeded Chernenko one year later, Reagan's optimism mounted. He told associates of his dream to escort the new Soviet leader on a tour of a working-class American neighborhood. As a biographer recounted, Reagan envisioned that the helicopter would descend and Reagan would invite Gorbachev to knock on doors and ask the residents what they think of our system. The workers would tell him how wonderful it was to live in America. All this would persuade the Soviet Union to join the global move toward democracy, and this in turn would produce peace, because governments which rest upon the consent of the governed do not wage war on their neighbors, a core principle of Wilson's view of international order. Applying his vision to the control of nuclear weapons, Reagan, at the Reykjavik summit with Gorbachev in 1986, proposed to eliminate all nuclear delivery systems while retaining and building up anti-missile systems. Such an outcome would achieve one of Reagan's oft-proclaimed goals to eliminate the prospect of nuclear war by doing away with the offensive capability for it and containing violators of the agreement by missile defense systems. The idea went beyond the scope of Gorbachev's imagination, which is why he bargained strenuously over a niggling reservation about confining missile defense system tests to the laboratory. The proposal to eliminate nuclear delivery systems was in any event beyond practicality, in that it would have been bitterly opposed by British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and French President François Mitterrand, who were convinced that Europe could not be defended without nuclear weapons and who treated their independent deterrence an ultimate insurance policy. Years later, I asked the Soviet ambassador Anatoly Dobrynin why the Soviets had not offered a compromise on the testing issue. He replied, because it never occurred to us that Reagan would simply walk out. Gorbachev sought to counter Reagan's vision with a concept of Soviet reform. But by the 1980s, the balance of forces which Soviet leaders had never tired of invoking over the decades of their rule had turned against them. Four decades of imperial expansion in all directions could not be sustained on the basis of an unworkable economic model. The United States, despite its divisions and vacillations, had preserved the essential elements of a situation of strength. Over two generations, it had built an informal anti-Soviet coalition of every other major industrial center and most of the developing world. Gorbachev realized that the Soviet Union could not sustain its prevailing course, but he underestimated the fragility of the Soviet system. 
His calls for reform, glasnost, publicity, and perestroika, restructuring, unleashed forces too disorganized for genuine reform and too demoralized to continue totalitarian leadership, much as Kennan had predicted half a century earlier. Reagan's idealistic commitment to democracy alone could not have produced such an outcome. Strong defense and economic policies, a shrewd analysis of Soviet weaknesses, and an unusually favorable alignment of external circumstances all played a role in the success of his policies. Yet without Reagan's idealism, bordering sometimes on a repudiation of history, the end of the Soviet challenge could not have occurred amidst such a global affirmation of a democratic future. Forty years earlier and for decades since, it was thought that the principal obstacle to a peaceful world order was the Soviet Union. The corollary was that the collapse of communism, imagined, if at all, in some distant future, would bring with it an era of stability and goodwill. It soon became apparent that history generally operates in longer cycles. Before a new international order could be constructed, it was necessary to deal with the debris of the Cold War. This task fell to George H.W. Bush, who managed America's predominance with moderation and wisdom. Patrician in upbringing in Connecticut, yet choosing to make his fortune in Texas, the more elemental entrepreneurial part of the United States, and with wide experience in all levels of government, Bush dealt with great skill with a stunning succession of crises, testing both the application of America's values and the reach of its vast power. Within months of his taking office, the Tiananmen upheaval in China challenged America's basic values, but also the importance for the global equilibrium of preserving the U.S.-China relationship. Having been head of the American liaison office in Beijing, before the establishment of formal relations, Bush navigated in a manner that maintained America's principles while retaining the prospect of ultimate cooperation. He managed the unification of Germany, heretofore considered a probable cause of war, by a skillful diplomacy facilitated by his decision not to exploit Soviet embarrassment at the collapse of its empire. In that spirit, when the Berlin Wall fell in 1989, Bush rejected all proposals to fly to Berlin to celebrate this demonstration of the collapse of Soviet policy. The adroit manner in which Bush brought the Cold War to a close obscured the domestic disputes through which the U.S. effort had been sustained, and which would characterize the challenges of the next stage. As the Cold War receded, the American consensus held that the main work of conversion had been achieved. A peaceful world order would now unfold, so long as the democracies took care to assist in the final wave of democratic transformations in countries still under authoritarian rule. The ultimate Wilsonian vision would be fulfilled. Free political and economic institutions would spread and eventually submerge outdated antagonisms in a broader harmony. In that spirit, Bush defeated Iraqi aggression in Kuwait during the first Gulf War by forging a coalition of the willing through the UN, the first joint action involving great powers since the Korean War. He stopped military operations when the limit that had been authorized by U.N. resolutions had been reached. Perhaps, as former ambassador to the U.N., he sought to apply the lesson of General MacArthur's decision to cross the dividing line 
between the two Koreas after his victory at Incheon. For a brief period, the global consensus behind the American-led defeat of Saddam Hussein's military conquest of Kuwait in 1991 seemed to vindicate the perennial American hope for a rules-based international order. In Prague in November 1990, Bush invoked a commonwealth of freedom, which would be governed by the rule of law. It would be a moral community, united in its dedication to free ideals. Membership in this commonwealth would be open to all. It might someday become universal. As such, the great and growing strength of the commonwealth of freedom would forge for all nations a new world order far more stable and secure than any we have known. The United States and its allies would move beyond containment and to a policy of active engagement. Bush's term was cut short by electoral defeat in 1992, in some sense because he ran as a foreign policy president, while his opponent, Bill Clinton, appealed to a war-weary public, promising to focus on America's domestic agenda. Nonetheless, the newly elected president rapidly reasserted a foreign policy vocation comparable to that of Bush. Clinton expressed the confidence of the era when, in a 1993 address to the UN General Assembly, he described his foreign policy concept as not containment but enlargement. Our overriding purpose, he announced, must be to expand and strengthen the world's community of market-based democracies. In this view, because the principles of political and economic liberty were universal, from Poland to Eritrea, from Guatemala to South Korea, their spread would require no force. Describing an enterprise consisting of enabling an inevitable historical evolution, Clinton pledged that American policy would aspire to a world of thriving democracies that cooperate with each other and live in peace. When Secretary of State Warren Christopher attempted to apply the enlargement theory to the People's Republic of China by making economic ties conditional on modifications within the Chinese system, he encountered a sharp rebuff. The Chinese leaders insisted that relations with the United States could only be conducted on a geostrategic basis, not, as had been proposed, on the basis of China's progress toward political liberalization. By the third year of his presidency, the Clinton approach to world order reverted to less insistent practice. Meanwhile, the enlargement concept encountered a much more militant adversary. Jihadism sought to spread its message and assaulted Western values and institutions, particularly those of the United States, as the principal obstacle. A few months before Clinton's General Assembly speech, an international group of extremists, including one American citizen, bombed the World Trade Center in New York City. Their secondary target, had the first been thwarted, was the United Nations Secretariat Building. The Westphalian concept of the state and international law, because based on rules not explicitly prescribed in the Koran, were abominations to this movement. Similarly objectionable was democracy for its capacity to legislate separately from Sharia law. America, in the view of the jihadist forces, was an oppressor of Muslims, seeking to implement their own universal mission. The challenge broke into the open with the attacks on New York and Washington on September 11, 2001. In the Middle East, at least, the end of the Cold War ushered in not a hoped-for time of democratic consensus, but a new age of ideological and military confrontation.
the Afghanistan and Iraq wars. After an anguishing discussion of the lessons of Vietnam, equally intense dilemmas recapitulated themselves three decades later, with wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Both conflicts had their origins in a breakdown of international order. For America, both ended in withdrawal. Afghanistan Al-Qaeda, having issued a fatwa in 1998 calling for the indiscriminate killing of Americans and Jews everywhere, enjoyed a sanctuary in Afghanistan, whose governing authorities, the Taliban, refused to expel the group's leadership and fighters. An American response to the attack on American territory was inevitable, and widely so understood around the world. A new challenge opened up almost immediately. How to establish international order when the principal adversaries are non-state organizations that defend no specific territory and reject established principles of legitimacy. The Afghan war began on a note of national unanimity and international consensus. Prospects for a rules-based international order seemed vindicated when NATO, for the first time in its history, applied Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, stipulating that an armed attack against one or more NATO ally in Europe or North America shall be considered an attack against them all. Nine days after the September 11th attacks, President George W. Bush dispatched an ultimatum to the Taliban authorities of Afghanistan, then harboring al-Qaeda. Deliver to United States authorities all the leaders of al-Qaeda who hide in your land. Give the United States full access to terrorist training camps so we can make sure they are no longer operating. When the Taliban failed to comply, the United States and its allies launched a war whose aims Bush described on October 7th in similarly limited terms. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. Initial warnings about Afghanistan's history as the graveyard of empires appeared unfounded. After a rapid effort led by American, British, and allied Afghan forces, the Taliban were deposed from power. In December 2001, an international conference in Bonn, Germany, proclaimed a provisional Afghan government with Hamid Karzai as its head and set up a process for convening a loya jirga, a traditional tribal council, to design and ratify post-war Afghan institutions. The Allied war aims seemed achieved. The participants in the Bonn negotiations optimistically asserted a vast vision. The establishment of a broad-based, gender-sensitive, multi-ethnic, and fully representative government. In 2003, a UN Security Council resolution authorized the expansion of the NATO International Security Assistance Force to support the Afghan Transitional Authority and its successors in the maintenance of security in areas of Afghanistan outside of Kabul and its environs, so that the Afghan authorities, as well as the personnel of the United Nations, can operate in a secure environment. The central premise of the American and Allied effort became rebuilding Afghanistan by means of a democratic, pluralistic, transparent Afghan government, whose writ ran across the entire country, and an Afghan national army capable of assuming responsibility for security on a national basis. With a striking idealism, 
These efforts were imagined to be comparable to the construction of democracy in Germany and Japan after World War II. No institutions in the history of Afghanistan or of any part of it provided a precedent for such a broad-based effort. Traditionally, Afghanistan has been less a state in the conventional sense than a geographic expression for an area never brought under the consistent administration of any single authority. For most of recorded history, Afghan tribes and sects have been at war with each other, briefly uniting to resist invasion or to launch marauding raids against their neighbors. Elites in Kabul might undertake periodic experiments with parliamentary institutions, but outside the capital, an ancient tribal code of honor predominated. Unification of Afghanistan has been achieved by foreigners only unintentionally, when the tribes and sects coalesce in opposition to an invader. Thus, what American and NATO forces met in the early 21st century was not radically different from the scene encountered by a young Winston Churchill in 1897. Except at harvest time, when self-preservation enjoins a temporary truce, the Patan, Pashtun tribes, are always engaged in private or public war. Every man is a warrior, a politician, and a theologian. Every large house is a real feudal fortress. Every village has its defense. Every family cultivates its vendetta. Every clan, its feud. The numerous tribes and combinations of tribes all have their accounts to settle with one another. Nothing is ever forgotten, and very few debts are left unpaid. In this context, the proclaimed coalition and UN goals of a transparent democratic Afghan central government, operating in a secure environment, amounted to a radical reinvention of Afghan history. It effectively elevated one clan above all others, Hamid Karzai's Pashtun Papalzai tribe, and required it to impose itself across the country, either through force, its own or that of the international coalition, or through distribution of the spoils of foreign aid, or both. Inevitably, the efforts required to impose such institutions trampled on age-old prerogatives, reshuffling the kaleidoscope of tribal alliances in ways that were difficult for any outside force to understand or control. The American election of 2008 compounded complexity with ambivalence. The new president, Barack Obama, had campaigned on the proposition that he would restore to the necessary war in Afghanistan the forces drained by the dumb war in Iraq, which he intended to end. But in office, he was determined to bring about a peacetime focus on transformational domestic priorities. The outcome was a re-emergence of the ambivalence that has accompanied American military campaigns in the post-World War II period. The dispatch of 30,000 additional troops for a surge in Afghanistan, coupled in the same announcement with a public deadline of 18 months for the beginning of their withdrawal. The purpose of the deadline, it was argued, was to provide an incentive to the Karzai government to accelerate its effort to build a modern central government and army to replace Americans. Yet in essence, the objective of a guerrilla strategy like the Taliban's is to outlast the defending forces. For the Kabul leadership, the announcement of a fixed date for losing its outside support set off a process of factional maneuvering, including with the Taliban. The strides made by Afghanistan during this period 
have been significant and hard won. The population has adopted electoral institutions with no little daring, because the Taliban continues to threaten death to those participating in democratic structures. The United States also succeeded in its objective of locating and eliminating Osama bin Laden, sending a powerful message about the country's global reach and determination to avenge atrocities. Nevertheless, the regional prospects remain challenging. In the period following the American withdrawal, imminent as of this writing, the writ of the Afghan government is likely to run in Kabul and its environs, but not uniformly in the rest of the country. There, a confederation of semi-autonomous feudal regions is likely to prevail on an ethnic basis, influenced substantially by competing foreign powers. The challenge will return to where it began, the compatibility of an independent Afghanistan with a regional political order. Afghanistan's neighbors should have at least as much of a national interest as the United States, and in the long run a far greater one, in defining and bringing about a coherent, non-jihadist outcome in Afghanistan. Each of Afghanistan's neighbors would risk turmoil within its own borders. If Afghanistan returns to its pre-war status as a base for jihadist non-state organizations, or as a state dedicated to jihadist policies, Pakistan above all in its entire domestic structure, Russia in its partly Muslim South and West, China with the significantly Muslim Xinjiang, and even Shiite Iran from fundamentalist Sunni trends. All of them, from a strategic point of view, are more threatened by an Afghanistan hospitable to terrorism than the United States is, except perhaps Iran, which may calculate, as it has in Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq, that a chaotic situation beyond its borders enables it to manipulate the contending factions. The ultimate irony may be that Afghanistan, torn by war, may be a test case of whether a regional order can be distilled from divergent security interests and historical perspectives. Without a sustainable international program regarding Afghanistan's security, each major neighbor will support rival factions across ancient ethnic and sectarian lines. The likely outcome would be a de facto partition, with Pakistan controlling the Pashtun South, and India, Russia, and perhaps China, favoring the ethnically mixed North. To avoid a vacuum, a major diplomatic effort is needed to define a regional order to deal with the possible re-emergence of Afghanistan as a jihadist center. In the 19th century, the major powers guaranteed Belgian neutrality, a guarantee that in the event lasted nearly 100 years is an equivalent with appropriate redefinitions possible. If such a concept, or a comparable one, is evaded, Afghanistan is likely to drag the world back into its perennial warfare. Iraq In the wake of the 9-11 attacks, President George W. Bush articulated a global strategy to counter jihadist extremism and to shore up the established international order, by infusing it with a commitment to democratic transformation. The great struggles of the 20th century, the White House's National Security Strategy of 2002 argued, had demonstrated that there was a single sustainable model for national success. Freedom, 
democracy, and free enterprise. The present moment, the National Security Strategy document stressed, saw a world shocked by an unprecedented terrorist atrocity and the great powers on the same side, united by common dangers of terrorist violence and chaos. The encouragement of free institutions and cooperative major power relations offered the best chance since the rise of the nation-state in the 17th century to build a world where great powers compete in peace instead of continually prepare for war. The centerpiece of what came to be called the Freedom Agenda was to be a transformation of Iraq from among the Middle East's most repressive states to a multi-party democracy, which would in turn inspire a regional democratic transformation. Iraqi democracy will succeed, and that success will send forth the news from Damascus to Tehran that freedom can be the future of every nation. The freedom agenda was not, as was later alleged, the arbitrary invention of a single president and his entourage. His basic premise was an elaboration of quintessentially American themes. The 2002 National Security Strategy document, which first announced the policy, repeated the arguments of NSC-68, that in 1950 had defined America's mission in the Cold War, albeit with one decisive difference. The 1950 document had enlisted America's values in defense of the free world. The 2002 document argued for the ending of tyranny everywhere on behalf of universal values of freedom. UN Security Council Resolution 687 of 1991 had required Iraq to destroy all stockpiles of its weapons of mass destruction and commit never to develop such weapons again. Ten Security Council resolutions since then had held Iraq in substantial violation. What was distinctive and traditionally American about the military effort in Iraq was the decision to cast this, in effect, enforcement action as an aspect of a project to spread freedom and democracy. America reacted to the mounting tide of radical Islamist universalism by reaffirming the universality of its own values and concept of world order. The basic premise began with significant public support, especially extending to the removal of Saddam Hussein. In 1998, the U.S. Congress passed the Iraq Liberation Act with overwhelming bipartisan support, 360 to 38 in the House and unanimously in the Senate, declaring that it should be the policy of the United States to support efforts to remove the regime headed by Saddam Hussein from power in Iraq and to promote the emergence of a democratic government to replace that regime. Signing the bill into law on October 31st, the same day as its passage in the Senate, President Clinton expressed the consensus of both parties. The United States wants Iraq to rejoin the family of nations as a freedom-loving and law-abiding member. This is in our interest and that of our allies within the region. The United States is providing support to opposition groups from all sectors of the Iraqi community that could lead to a popularly supported government. Because no political parties were permitted in Iraq, except the governing Ba'ath Party, which Saddam Hussein ran with an iron fist, and therefore no formal opposition parties existed, 
The president's phrase had to mean that the United States would generate a covert program to overthrow the Iraqi dictator. After the military intervention in Iraq, Bush elaborated broader implications in a November 2003 speech, marking the 20th anniversary of the National Endowment for Democracy. Bush condemned past U.S. policies in the region for having sought stability at the price of liberty. Sixty years of Western nations excusing and accommodating the lack of freedom in the Middle East did nothing to make us safe, because in the long run, stability cannot be purchased at the expense of liberty. In the changed circumstances of the 21st century, traditional policy approaches posed unacceptable risks. The administration was therefore shifting from a policy of stability to a forward strategy of freedom in the Middle East. American experience in Europe and Asia demonstrated that the advance of freedom leads to peace. I supported the decision to undertake regime change in Iraq. I had doubts expressed in public and governmental forums about expanding it to nation-building and giving it such universal scope. But before recording my reservations, I want to express here my continuing respect and personal affection for President George W. Bush, who guided America with courage, dignity, and conviction in an unsteady time. His objectives and dedication honored his country even when in some cases they proved unattainable within the American political cycle. It is a symbol of his devotion to the freedom agenda that Bush is now pursuing it in his post-presidential life and made it the key theme of his presidential library in Dallas. Having spent my childhood as a member of a discriminated minority in a totalitarian system and then as an immigrant to the United States, I have experienced the liberating aspects of American values, spreading them by example and civil assistance as in the Marshall Plan and economic aid programs is an honored and important part of the American tradition. But to seek to achieve them by military intervention in a part of the world where they had no historical roots, and to expect fundamental change in a politically relevant period of time, the standard set by many supporters and critics of the Iraq effort alike, proved beyond what the American public would support and what Iraqi society could accommodate. Given the ethnic divisions in Iraq and the millennial conflict between Sunni and Shia, the dividing line of which ran through the center of Baghdad, the attempt to reverse historical legacies under combat conditions, amidst divisive American domestic debates, imbued the American endeavor in Iraq with a Sisyphean quality. The determined opposition of neighboring regimes compounded the difficulties. It became an endless effort, always just short of success. Implementing a pluralist democracy in place of Saddam Hussein's brutal rule proved infinitely more difficult than the overthrow of the dictator. The Shias, long disenfranchised and hardened by decades of oppression under Hussein, tended to equate democracy with a ratification of their numeric dominance. The Sunnis treated democracy as a foreign plot to repress them. On this basis, most Sunnis boycotted the 2004 elections, instrumental in defining the post-war constitutional order. The Kurds in the north, with memories of murderous onslaughts by Baghdad, 
enhanced their separate military capabilities, and strove for control of oil fields to provide themselves with revenue not dependent on the national treasury. They defined autonomy in terms minutely different, if at all, from national independence. Passions already high in an atmosphere of revolution and foreign occupation were ruthlessly inflamed and exploited after 2003 by outside forces. Iran, which backed Shia groups subverting the nascent government's independence. Syria, which abetted the transfer of arms and jihadists through its territory, ultimately with devastating consequences for its own cohesion. And Al-Qaeda, which began a campaign of systematic slaughter against the Shias. Each community increasingly treated the post-war order as a zero-sum battle for power, territory, and oil revenues. In this atmosphere, Bush's courageous January 2007 decision to deploy a surge of additional troops to quell violence was met with a non-binding resolution of disapproval, supported by 246 members of the House. Though it failed on procedural grounds in the Senate, 56 senators joined in opposition to the surge. The Senate Majority Leader soon declared that this war is lost and the surge is not accomplishing anything. The same month, the House and the Senate passed bills vetoed by the President, mandating that American withdrawals start within a year. Bush, it has been reported, closed a 2007 planning session with the question, if we're not there to win, why are we there? The remark embodied the resoluteness of the president's character as well as the tragedy of a country whose people have been prepared for more than half a century to send its sons and daughters to remote corners of the world in defense of freedom, but whose political system has not been able to muster the same unified and persistent purpose. For while the surge, daringly ordered by Bush and brilliantly executed by General David Petraeus, succeeded in wresting an honorable outcome from looming collapse. The American mood had shifted by this point. Barack Obama won the Democratic nomination in part on the strength of his opposition to the Iraq War. On taking office, he continued his public critiques of his predecessor and undertook an exit strategy, with greater emphasis on exit than on strategy. As of this writing, Iraq functions as a central battlefield in an unfolding regional sectarian contest, its government leaning toward Iran, elements of its Sunni population in military opposition to the government, members of both sides of its sectarian divide supporting the contending jihadist efforts in Syria, and the terrorist group ISIL attempting to build a caliphate across half of its territory. The issue transcends political debates about its antecedents. The consolidation of a jihadist entity at the heart of the Arab world, equipped with substantial captured weaponry and a transnational fighting force, engaged in religious war with radical Iranian and Iraqi Shia groups, calls for a concerted and forceful international response or it will metastasize. A sustained diplomatic effort by America the other permanent members of the Security Council, and potentially its regional adversaries, will be needed. The Purpose and the Possible 
The nature of the international order was at issue when the Soviet Union emerged as a challenge to the Westphalian state system. With decades of hindsight, one can debate whether the balance sought by America was always the optimum. But it is hard to gainsay that the United States, in a world of weapons of mass destruction and political and social upheaval, preserved the peace, helped restore Europe's vitality, and provided crucial economic aid to emerging countries. It was in the conduct of its hot wars that America found it difficult to relate purpose to possibility. In only one of the five wars America fought after World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the First Gulf War, Iraq, and Afghanistan, the First Gulf War under President George H.W. Bush did America achieve the goals it had put forward for entering it without intense domestic division. When the outcomes of the other conflicts, ranging from stalemate to unilateral withdrawal, became foreordained is a subject for another debate. For present purposes, it is sufficient to state that a country that has to play an indispensable role in the search for world order needs to begin that task by coming to terms with that role and with itself. The essence of historical events is rarely fully apparent to those living through them. The Iraq War may be seen as a catalyzing event in a larger transformation of the region, the fundamental character of which is as yet unknown and awaits the long-term outcome of the Arab Spring, the Iranian nuclear and geopolitical challenge, and the jihadist assault on Iraq and Syria. The advent of electoral politics in Iraq in 2004 almost certainly inspired demands for participatory institutions elsewhere in the region. What is yet to be seen is whether they can be combined with a spirit of tolerance and peaceful compromise. As America examines the lessons of its 21st century wars, it is important to remember that no other major power has brought to its strategic efforts such deeply felt aspirations for human betterment. There is a special character to a nation that proclaims as war aims not only to punish its enemies, but to improve the lives of their people, that has sought victory not in domination, but in sharing the fruits of liberty. America would not be true to itself if it abandoned this essential idealism, nor would it reassure friends or win over adversaries by setting aside such a core aspect of its national experience. But to be effective, these aspirational aspects of policy must be paired with an unsentimental analysis of underlying factors, including the cultural and geopolitical configuration of other regions and the dedication and resourcefulness of adversaries opposing American interests and values. America's moral aspirations need to be combined with an approach that takes into account the strategic element of policy in terms the American people can support and sustain through multiple political cycles. Former Secretary of State George Shultz has articulated the American ambivalence astutely. Americans, being a moral people, want their foreign policy to reflect the values we espouse as a nation. But Americans, being a practical people, also want their foreign policy to be effective. The American domestic debate is frequently described as a contest between idealism and realism. It may turn out, for America and the rest of the world, 
that if America cannot act in both modes, it will not be able to fulfill either. Chapter 9 Technology, Equilibrium, and Human Consciousness Every age has its light motif, a set of beliefs that explains the universe, that inspires or consoles the individual by providing an explanation for the multiplicity of events impinging on him. In the medieval period, it was religion. In the Enlightenment, it was reason. In the 19th and 20th centuries, it was nationalism combined with a view of history as a motivating force. Science and technology are the governing concepts of our age. They have brought about advances in human well-being unprecedented in history. Their evolution transcends traditional cultural constraints. Yet they have also produced weapons capable of destroying mankind. Technology has brought about a means of communication permitting instantaneous contact between individuals or institutions in every part of the globe, as well as the storage and retrieval of vast quantities of information at the touch of a button. Yet by what purposes is this technology informed? What happens to international order if technology has become such a part of everyday life that it defines its own universe as the sole relevant one? Is the destructiveness of modern weapons technology so vast that a common fear may unite mankind in order to eliminate the scourge of war? Or will possession of these weapons create a permanent foreboding? Will the rapidity and scope of communication break down barriers between societies and individuals and provide transparency of such magnitude that the age-old dreams of a human community will come into being? Or will the opposite happen? Will mankind, amidst weapons of mass destruction, networked transparency, and the absence of privacy, propel itself into a world without limits or order, careening through crises without comprehending them? The author claims no competence in the more advanced forms of technology. His concern is with its implications. World Order in the nuclear age. Since history began to be recorded, political units, whether described as states or not, had at their disposal war as the ultimate recourse. Yet the technology that made war possible also limited its scope. The more powerful and well-equipped states could only project force over limited distances, in certain quantities, and against so many targets. Ambitious leaders were constrained both by convention and by the state of communications technology. Radical courses of action were inhibited by the pace at which they unfolded. Diplomatic instructions were obliged to take into account contingencies that might occur in the time in which a message could make a round trip. This imposed a built-in pause for reflection and acknowledged a distinction between what leaders could and could not control. Whether a balance of power between states operated as a formal principle or was simply practiced without theoretical elaboration, equilibrium of some kind was an essential component of any international order, either at the periphery, as with the Roman and Chinese empires, or as a core operating principle, as in Europe. With the Industrial Revolution, the pace of change quickened and the power projected by modern militaries grew more devastating. 
When the technological gap was great, even rudimentary technology by present standards could be genocidal in effect. European technology and European diseases did much to wipe out existing civilizations in the Americas. With the promise of new efficiencies came new potentials for destruction, as the impact of mass conscription multiplied the compounding effect of technology. The advent of nuclear weapons brought this process to a grim culmination. In World War II, scientists from the major powers labored to achieve mastery of the atom and with it the ability to release its energy. The American effort, known as the Manhattan Project, and drawing on the best minds from the United States, Britain, and the European diaspora, prevailed. After the first successful atomic test in July 1945, in the deserts of New Mexico, J. Robert Oppenheimer, the theoretical physicist who headed the secret weapons development effort, awed by his triumph, recalled a verse from the Bhagavad Gita, Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. In earlier periods, wards had an implicit calculus. The benefits of victory outweighed its cost and the weaker fought to impose such costs on the stronger as to disturb this equation. Alliances were formed to augment power, to leave no doubt about the alignment of forces, to define the casus belli insofar as the removal of doubt about ultimate intentions is possible in a society of sovereign states. The penalties of military conflict were considered less than the penalties of defeat. By contrast, the nuclear age based itself on a weapon whose use would impose costs out of proportion to any conceivable benefit. The nuclear age posed the dilemma of how to bring the destructiveness of modern weapons into some moral or political relationship with the objectives that were being pursued. Prospects for any kind of international order, indeed for human survival, now urgently required the amelioration, if not elimination, of major power conflict. A theoretical limit was sought, short of the point of either superpower using the entirety of its military capabilities. Strategic stability was defined as a balance in which neither side would use its weapons of mass destruction because the adversary was always able to inflict an unacceptable level of destruction in retaliation. In a series of seminars at Harvard, Caltech, MIT, and the Rand Corporation, among others, in the 1950s and 1960s, a doctrine of limited use explored confining nuclear weapons to the battlefield or to military targets. All such theoretical efforts failed. Whatever limits were imagined, once the threshold to nuclear warfare was crossed, Modern technology overrode observable limits and always enabled the adversary to escalate. Ultimately, strategists on both sides coalesced, at least tacitly, on the concept of a mutual assured destruction as the mechanism of nuclear peace. Based on the premise that both sides possessed a nuclear arsenal capable of surviving an initial assault, the objective was to counterbalance threats sufficiently terrifying that neither side would conceive of testing them. By the end of the 1960s, the prevailing strategic doctrine of each superpower relied on the ability to inflict an unacceptable level of damage on the presumed adversary. 
What the adversary would consider unacceptable was, of course, unknowable. Nor was this judgment communicated. A surreal quality haunted this calculus of deterrence, which relied on logical equations of scenarios, positing a level of the casualties exceeding that suffered in four years of world wars, and occurring in a matter of days or hours. Because there was no prior experience with the weapons underpinning these threats, deterrence depended in large part on the ability to affect the adversary psychologically. When in the 1950s Mao spoke of China's willingness to accept sacrifices of hundreds of millions in a nuclear war, it was widely treated in the West as a symptom of emotional or ideological derangement. It was, in fact, probably the consequence of a sober calculation that to withstand military capacities beyond previous human experience, a country needed to demonstrate a willingness to sacrifice beyond human comprehension. In any case, the shock in Western and Warsaw-packed capitals at these statements ignored that the superpower's own concepts of deterrence rested on apocalyptic risks. Even if more urbanely expressed, the doctrine of mutual assured destruction relied on the proposition that leaders were acting in the interest of peace by deliberately exposing their civilian populations to the threat of annihilation. Many efforts were undertaken to avoid the dilemma of possessing a huge arsenal that could not be used and whose use could not even plausibly be threatened. Complicated war scenarios were devised, but neither side, to the best of my knowledge, and for some of this period I was in a position to know, ever approached the point of actually using nuclear weapons in a specific crisis between the two superpowers except for the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, when a Soviet combat division was initially authorized to use its nuclear weapons to defend itself, neither side approached their use, either against each other or in wars against non-nuclear third countries. In this manner, the most fearsome weapons, commanding large shares of each superpower's defense budget, lost their relevance to the actual crises facing leaders. Mutual suicide became the mechanism of international order. When during the Cold War the two sides, Washington and Moscow, challenged each other, it was through proxy wars. At the pinnacle of the nuclear era, it was conventional forces that assumed pivotal importance. The military struggles of the time were taking place on the far-flung periphery, Inchon, the Mekong River Delta, Luanda, Iraq, and Afghanistan. The measure of success was effectiveness in supporting local allies in the developing world. In short, the strategic arsenals of the major powers, incommensurable with conceivable political objectives, created an illusion of omnipotence belied by the actual evolution of events. It was in this context that in 1969 President Nixon started formal talks with the Soviets on the limitation of strategic arms, with the acronym SALT. They resulted in a 1972 agreement that established a ceiling for the offensive buildup and limited each superpower's anti-ballistic missile sites to one, in effect turning them into training sites because a full ABM deployment for the United States under an original Nixon proposal in 1969 would have required 12 sites.
The reasoning was that since the U.S. Congress refused to approbate missile defense beyond two sites, deterrence needed to be based on mutual assured destruction. For that strategy, the offensive nuclear weapons on each side were sufficient, in fact more than sufficient, to produce an unacceptable level of casualties. The absence of missile defense would remove any uncertainty from that calculation, guaranteeing mutual deterrence, but also the destruction of the society, should deterrence fail. At the Reykjavik summit in 1986, Reagan reversed the mutual assured destruction approach. He proposed the abolition of all offensive weapons by both sides, and the scrapping of the anti-ballistic missile treaty, thereby allowing a defensive system. His intent was to do away with the concept of mutual assured destruction by proscribing offensive systems and keeping defense systems as a hedge against violations. But Gorbachev, believing mistakenly that the U.S. missile defense program was well underway while the Soviet Union, lacking an equivalent technological economic base, could not keep up, insisted on maintaining the ABM Treaty. The Soviets, in effect, gave up the race in strategic weapons three years later, ending the Cold War. Since then, the number of strategic nuclear offensive warheads has been reduced, first under President George W. Bush and then under President Obama, by agreement with Russia to about 1,500 warheads for each side, approximately 10% of the number of warheads that existed at the high point of the Mutual Assured Destruction Strategy. The reduced number is more than enough to implement a mutual assured destruction strategy. The nuclear balance has produced a paradoxical impact on the international order. The historic balance of power had facilitated the Western domination of the then-colonial world. By contrast, the nuclear order, the West's own creation, had the opposite effect. The margin of military superiority of advanced countries over the developing countries has been incomparably larger than at any previous period in history. But because so much of their military effort has been devoted to nuclear weapons, whose use in anything but the gravest crisis was implicitly discounted, regional powers could redress the overall military balance by a strategy geared to prolonging any war beyond the willingness of the advanced country's public to sustain it, as France experienced in Algeria and Vietnam the United States, in Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and the Soviet Union, in Afghanistan. All except Korea resulted in, in effect, a unilateral withdrawal by the formerly much stronger power after protracted conflict with conventional forces. Asymmetric warfare operated in the interstices of traditional doctrines of linear operations against an enemy's territory. Guerrilla forces, which defend no territory, could concentrate on inflicting casualties and eroding the public's political will to continue the conflict. In this sense, technological supremacy turned into geopolitical impotence. The Challenge of Nuclear Proliferation With the end of the Cold War, the threat of nuclear war between the existing nuclear superpowers has essentially disappeared. But the spread of technology, especially the technology to produce peaceful nuclear energy, 
has vastly increased the feasibility of acquiring a nuclear weapons capability. The sharpening of ideological dividing lines and the persistence of unresolved regional conflicts have magnified the incentives to acquire nuclear weapons, including for rogue states or non-state actors. The calculations of mutual insecurity that produced restraint during the Cold War do not apply with anything like the same degree, if at all, to the new entrants in the nuclear field, and even less so to the non-state actors. Proliferation of nuclear weapons has become an overarching strategic problem for the contemporary international order. In response to these perils, the United States, the Soviet Union, and the United Kingdom negotiated a Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, NPT, and opened it for signature in 1968. It proposed to prevent any further spread of nuclear weapons. The United States, the USSR, and the UK signed in 1968, and France and China signed in 1992. Non-nuclear weapon states were to be given assistance by the nuclear states in the peaceful utilization of nuclear technology, provided they accepted safeguards to guarantee their nuclear programs remained purely non-military endeavors. At this writing, there are 189 signatories of the Non-Proliferation Agreement. Yet the global non-proliferation regime has had difficulty embedding itself as a true international norm. Assailed by some as a form of nuclear apartheid and treated by many states as a rich country fixation, the NPT's restrictions have often functioned as a set of aspirations that countries must be cajoled to implement rather than as a binding legal obligation. Illicit progress toward nuclear weapons has proved difficult to discover and resist, for its initial steps are identical with the development of peaceful uses of nuclear energy, specifically authorized by the NPT. The treaty proscribed but did not prevent signatories, such as Libya, Syria, Iraq, and Iran, from maintaining covert nuclear programs in violation of NPT safeguards, or, in the case of North Korea, withdrawing from the NPT in 2003 and testing and proliferating nuclear technology without international control. Where a state has violated or repudiated the terms of the NPT, hovered on the edge of compliance, or simply declined to recognize the legitimacy of non-proliferation as an international norm, there exists no defined international mechanism for enforcing it. So far, preemptive action has been taken by the United States only against Iraq, a contributing motive for the war against Saddam Hussein, and by Israel against Iraq and Syria. The Soviet Union considered it against China in the 1960s, though ultimately refrained. The non-proliferation regime has scored a few significant successes in bringing about the negotiated dismantlement of nuclear programs. South Africa... Brazil, Argentina, and several post-Soviet republics have abandoned nuclear weapons programs that had either come to fruition or made significant technical progress. At the same time, since the end of the American monopoly in 1949, nuclear weapons have been acquired by the Soviet Union, Russia, Britain, France, Israel, China, India, Pakistan, North Korea, and at a threshold level by Iran. 
Moreover, Pakistan and North Korea have proliferated their nuclear know-how widely. Proliferation has had an impact on the nuclear equilibrium in a differential way, depending on the perceived willingness of the new nuclear country to use its weapons. British and French nuclear capabilities add to the NATO arsenal only marginally. They are conceived primarily as a last resort, as a safety net in case of abandonment by the United States, if some major power were to threaten British and French perceptions of their basic national interest, or as a means to stay apart from a nuclear war between superpowers, all essentially remote contingencies. The Indian and Pakistani nuclear establishments are, in the first instance, directed against each other, affecting the strategic equilibrium in two ways. The risks of escalation may reduce the likelihood of full-scale conventional war on the subcontinent. But because the weapon systems are so vulnerable and technically so difficult to protect against short-range attack, the temptation for preemption is inherent in the technology especially in situations when emotions are already running high. In short, proliferation generates the classic nuclear dilemma. Even when nuclear weapons reduce the likelihood of war, they would gigantically magnify its ferocity were war to occur. India's nuclear relations with China are likely to approximate the deterrent posture that existed between the adversaries in the Cold War. That is, they will tend toward preventing their use. Pakistan's nuclear establishment impinges on wider regional and global issues. Abutting the Middle East, and with a significant domestic Islamist presence at home, Pakistan has occasionally hinted at the role of nuclear protector or of nuclear armorer. The impact of the proliferation of nuclear weapons to Iran would compound all these issues as discussed in Chapter 4. Over time, the continued proliferation of nuclear weapons will affect even the overall nuclear balance between the nuclear superpowers. Leaders of the established nuclear powers are obliged to prepare for the worst contingency. This involves the possibility of nuclear threats posed not only by the other superpower, but also by proliferating countries. Their arsenals will reflect the conviction that they need, beyond deterrence of the principal potential adversary, a residual force to cope with the proliferated part of the rest of the world. If each major nuclear power calculates in this manner, proliferation will impel a proportional increase in these residual forces, straining or exceeding existing limits. Further, these overlapping nuclear balances will grow more complicated as proliferation proceeds. The relatively stable nuclear order of the Cold War will be superseded by an international order in which projection by a state possessing nuclear weapons of an image of a willingness to take apocalyptic decisions may offer it a perverse advantage over rivals. To provide themselves a safety net against nuclear superpowers, even countries with nuclear capabilities have an incentive to nestle under the tacit or overt support of a superpower. Examples are Israel, the European nuclear forces, Japan, with its threshold nuclear capability, other proliferating or near-proliferating states in the Middle East. So it may transpire that the proliferation of weapons will lead to alliance systems comparable in their rigidity to the alliances that led to World War I 
though far exceeding them in global reach and destructive power. A particularly serious imbalance may arise if a proliferated country approaches the military offensive capability of the two nuclear superpowers, a task which for both China and India seems attainable. Any major nuclear country, if it succeeds in staying out of a nuclear conflict between the others, would emerge as potentially dominant. In a multipolar nuclear world, that too could occur if such a country aligns with one of the superpowers because the combined forces might then have a strategic advantage. The rough nuclear balance that exists between current superpowers may then tilt away from strategic stability. The lower the agreed level of offensive forces between Russia and the United States, the more this will be true. Any further spread of nuclear weapons multiplies the possibilities of nuclear confrontation. It magnifies the danger of diversion, deliberate or unauthorized. It will eventually affect the balance between nuclear superpowers. And as the development of nuclear weapons spreads into Iran and continues in North Korea, in defiance of all ongoing negotiations, the incentives for other countries to follow the same path could become overwhelming. In the face of these trends, the United States needs to constantly review its own technology. During the Cold War, nuclear technology was broadly recognized as the forefront of American scientific achievements, a frontier of knowledge then posing the most important and strategic challenges. Now, the best technical minds are encouraged to devote efforts instead to projects seen as more publicly relevant. Perhaps partly as a result, inhibitions on the elaboration of nuclear technology are treated as inexorable, even as proliferating countries arm and other countries enhance their technology. The United States must remain at the frontier of nuclear technology even while it negotiates about restraint in its use. From the perspective of the past half-century's absence of a major power conflict, it could be argued that nuclear weapons have made the world less prone to war. But the decrease in the number of wars has been accompanied by a vast increase in violence carried out by non-state groups or by states under some label other than war. A combination of extraordinary risk and ideological radicalism has opened up the possibilities for asymmetric war and for challenges by non-state groups that undermine long-term restraint. Perhaps the most important challenge to the established nuclear powers is for them to determine their reaction if nuclear weapons were actually used by proliferating countries against each other. First, what must be done to prevent the use of nuclear weapons beyond existing agreements? If they should nonetheless be used... What immediate steps must be taken to stop such a war? How can the human and social damage be addressed? What can be done to prevent retaliatory escalation while still upholding the validity of deterrence and imposing appropriate consequences should deterrence fail? The march of technological progress must not obscure the fearsomeness of the capabilities humanity has invented and the relative fragility of the balances restraining their use. Nuclear weapons must not be permitted to turn into conventional arms. 
At that juncture, international order will require an understanding between the existing major nuclear countries to insist on non-proliferation, or order will be imposed by the calamities of nuclear war. Cyber Technology and World Order For most of history, technological change unfolded over decades and centuries of incremental advances that refined and combined existing technologies. Even radical innovations could, over time, be fitted within previous tactical and strategic doctrines. Tanks were considered in terms of precedence drawn from centuries of cavalry warfare. Airplanes could be conceptualized as another form of artillery. Battleships as mobile forts. And aircraft carriers as airstrips. For all their magnification of destructive power, even nuclear weapons are in some respects an extrapolation from previous experience. What is new in the present era is the rate of change of computing power and the expansion of information technology into every sphere of existence. Reflecting in the 1960s on his experiences as an engineer at the Intel Corporation, Gordon Moore concluded that the trend he had observed would continue at regular intervals to double the capacity of computer processing units every two years. Moore's Law has proved astoundingly prophetic. Computers have shrunk in size, declined in cost, and grown exponentially faster to the point where advanced computer processing units can now be embedded in almost any object, phones, watches, cars, home appliances, weapon systems, unmanned aircraft, and the human body itself. The revolution in computing is the first to bring so many individuals and processes into the same medium of communication and to translate and track their actions in a single technological language. Cyberspace, a word coined, at that point as an essentially hypothetical concept, only in the 1980s, has colonized physical space and, at least in major urban centers, is beginning to merge with it. Communication across it and between its exponentially proliferating nodes is near instantaneous. As tasks that were primarily manual or paper-based a generation ago, reading, shopping, education, friendship, industrial and scientific research, political campaigns, finance, government record-keeping, surveillance, military strategy, are filtered through the computing realm Human activity becomes increasingly datafied and part of a single quantifiable, analyzable system. This is all the more so as, with the number of devices connected to the Internet now roughly 10 billion and projected to rise to 50 billion by 2020, an Internet of Things or an Internet of Everything looms. Innovators now forecast a world of ubiquitous computing with miniature data processing devices embedded in everyday objects, smart door locks, toothbrushes, wristwatches, fitness trackers, smoke detectors, surveillance cameras, ovens, toys, and robots. Or floating through the air, surveying and shaping their environment in the form of smart dust. Each object is to be connected to the Internet and programmed to communicate with a central server 
or other networked devices. The revolution's effects extend to every level of human organization. Individuals wielding smartphones, and currently an estimated one billion people do, now possess information and analytical capabilities beyond the range of many intelligence agencies a generation ago. Corporations aggregating and monitoring the data exchanged by these individuals wield powers of influence and surveillance exceeding those of many contemporary states and nearly all traditional great powers. And governments, wary of ceding the new field to rivals, are propelled outward into a cyber realm with as yet few guidelines or restraints. As with any technological innovation, the temptation will be to see this new realm as a field for strategic advantage. These changes have occurred so rapidly as to outstrip most attempts by those without technological expertise to comprehend their broader consequences. They draw humanity into regions hitherto unexplained, indeed unconceived. As a result, many of the most revolutionary technologies and techniques are currently limited in their use only by the capability and the discretion of the most technologically advanced.